Hey there, welcome to Holding the High Line with Rabbi in Red. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Matt Pollard. It is Monday, December 12th, 2022. If you are wondering why I started the podcast the way I did, it's because that's how Grant Wall always started his podcast. Grant died on Friday in Qatar while covering the Netherlands-Argentina match. He collapsed during the game and was unable to be resuscitated. He was taken to the hospital in an ambulance where he was pronounced dead on arrival. He was a founding father of modern soccer journalism in America. He survived by his wife, Celine, and his brother, Eric, who is gay. Grant stood up for his brother's human rights in the first week of the tournament by wearing a shirt that had a soccer ball surrounded by a rainbow for which he was detained by Qatar Stadium Security. He was an incredible journalist and kind human being and was 48 years old. Joining me now to celebrate Grant's life uh, and talk about much other things in the soccering world and in the Rapids world, Rabbi Mark Goodman and former Switchbacks and Austin FC contributor to Last Word, Mark Turner. Marks, how are we? Hey guys, thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I wish it were under better circumstances, but nevertheless, I'm, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come on with, uh, the show and talk to you about Grant and some of uh, what he means to us. Mm-hmm. Rabbi, how are you as we are looking on to, it's what, the final week leading up to Hanukkah, and how excited are you for possibly the first and only ever first night of Hanukkah coinciding with uh, a World Cup final? That is an exciting uh, fact. There is supposed to be a big synagogue celebration of Hanukkah while the World Cup is going on, and I am going to have to figure out a way to, while we're having fun and games and latkes and donuts, uh, project the World Cup on a wall of the sanctuary, and uh, I, I think that people just have to be okay with that. But back to the first thing, Matt, that was a beautiful tribute to and or eulogy for Grant Wall. Um, I think us who read and write about soccer really, uh, I was going to say love the man. And then I was like, that's a lot. Maybe just like the man. And then I was like, no, we love the man. I mean, I think he really put his heart and soul into his writing. Uh, I think a lot of sports writers are reflecting on how passionate he was and how he elevated the game, how he elevated the men's national game for the U.S. men's national team. Specifically, how he elevated the women's game. Um, he did a lot of great podcast series that called attention to different corners of the soccer world that I think we either didn't think were worthy of getting attention or were worthy. We just didn't have a champion to call it out. And, um, you know, as much as all of his past work is important um, and should be celebrated and all of his relationships with soccer writers and his way of elevating soccer writing um, in the present tense is being lamented. And a lot of people are just sad about losing a good friend. Um, I'm mostly sad about all the good writing that he would have produced over the next 30 years that we'll never get to see that other people, other voices are going to have to fill in as best we can without him. 
Mm-hmm. Well said there, Rabbi. Um, one of the things that's been really poignant for me, one of the things that I'm now regretting, Marks, is having not actually met him. There wasn't an easy opportunity to do so, but now I'm kind of thinking all the people that I've interacted with in this media space that remotely have open DMs, I should be messaging. So I actually, I have a note to DM and have a direct interaction with Roger Bennett for the first time ever <laughs> this evening when we're done recording. But, um, you know, there's just been so many stories of people big and small in this space where Grant was by where Grant showed up at a press conference or at a Zoom call or at an actual game. And he was one of the four biggest fish in that proverbial pond and was super nice to a minnow and followed up with them, had relationships with them and everything. Um, our, our Between the four of us now, between the three of us, our mutual colleague Rachel Krigger spoke about this on Last Word Soccer Club Radio over the weekend. So check that out if you want to hear her personal story about that. But um, Mark Turner you have your own story of that. And I'm wondering if you'd like to start off with that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that, Matt. Yeah. Um, as I'm hearing you talk there, you're using the, you know, the terminology of a big fish and working with minnows and, and helping those minnows along. I mean, that description couldn't be more apt and that's exactly the situation I found myself in. Um, so as you mentioned at the beginning, I was doing some work for last word, last year uh covering austin fc and uh in that capacity i had the opportunity to attend a u.s men's national team game when that game took place at q2 stadium in austin uh when the u.s men's national team were playing against jamaica in ironically now a world cup qualifying game and um so of course i was press credentialed and showed up nice and early to try and get myself a seat press box even then was busy uh, and it, it was a it was a warm day and it was a little stuffy so austin fc the austin fc team had done something that they had never done prior to that match but i think they've done subsequently because it was so well received and that was put tables outside kind of on that top patio area um which gave you a great view of the field but again it kind of brought you out that stuffy press box and uh, and gave you an opportunity to kind of be out in the fresh air and I remember seeing one table that was well positioned, uh, gave me a great view of the field, and it was a two-man table, and there happened to be a bag and some bits and pieces on one end of the table, and I thought, oh, I'll put my stuff on the other end, and I'll take that seat, and did so, and I went to the bathroom. And when I came back, uh, obviously he was pretty distinguishable with his, his shining dome. I saw Grant Wall sat there at the desk. He was the owner of the bag and the uh, other accoutrement that were already at that desk. And the first thought that went through my head was, I need to grab my gear and move. <laughs> like, I have no place being at the same table as this man. Um, Grant Wall was, you know, for me, a highly revered writer, particularly within the US sphere. You know, coming from the UK, listeners, you may have noticed I have an accent. I had grown up with other writers, and, and there are writers back home. And in continental Europe, that is certainly revere. But having moved to the US, Grant was one of those I gravitated to very quickly because, as Rabbi mentioned in, in, one, in a wonderful piece he dropped earlier today, um, you know, it was his writing style in that you really felt like he was taking you somewhere. He was giving you, um, you know, that look behind the curtain, something, something really exclusive and special, but he wasn't doing it in a way that was, oh, look at me, I'm so great, look at the connections I have, and I'm going to teach you about soccer. It was never, the tone was never condescending. Um, it was always so accessible. And, and that's how he was. I, I went to the table and kind of sheepishly sat down. And again, 
thought for a moment about removing my gear and finding some place else to sit. And then he turned to me and smiled and, hey, who are you? And I introduced myself and he's like, I'm Grant. I'm like, duh. <laughs> um, and we got talking and within a couple of minutes, I couldn't help myself. I said, look, I'm a massive fan of yours and I, and I, I, I just love your writing. This is so fanboy, but would it be okay to get a selfie? He said, yeah, absolutely, sure. So we did. And um, anyone that follows me on Twitter, Turner in Verde, uh, we'll see I have that picture posted now um, and pinned, I should say, excuse me, to my wall. Um, and then and then I had, uh, honestly, two, two of the most magical hours of my, of my life, like watching football, because I was sat shoulder to shoulder with Grant Wall on this two-man desk watching the U.S. men's national team, the team that arguably he's written the most about and knows most intimately. And he and I were having conversations during the game. We were talking about formation. We were talking about individual player performances. We were talking about transition play. It was... And I was aware of that. I was in the moment. I was like, this is insane. Like, people would pay to have this opportunity this is crazy and then we got done with the game obviously did coffee and everything said our goodbyes but it, we stayed in touch it wasn't extensive conversations it was me making comments here and there on things he posted on instagram and him remarkably always responding every dm i sent him thanks man i really appreciate that or yeah, that was you know such and such a situation. Or the last time I corresponded with him was um, actually on his birthday. Sent him a quick note: "Happy birthday, go safe." Um, and again, you know, I know now he wasn't in great shape and everything. He probably must have gotten I don't know a couple of hundred birthday wishes. Um, and yet, he took a moment to ping me back and say thanks, you know, thanks so much for the birthday wishes. So. Um, so yeah, awesome guy. I want to briefly go through some of his career achievements and other things that he's done. Um, he covered the, he was, I believe, still in college, still at Princeton when he covered the World Cup in 1994. I might have this stat wrong. I've heard him mention it on the podcast a number of times. I believe since 1994 and including it, he's covered every single World Cup, men's and women's, with the exception of one. I can't remember which one it is, so I might have that stat wrong there, folks. Um, he ran to unseat FIFA's president after the bust up in what 2015 maybe I can't remember what year it was where they busted up all the guys in Switzerland after Qatar and Russia had already won the World Cup and then he did a deep dive on what does the actual process look like how does someone go about being FIFA president sees that it's corrupt but also that anybody could do it potentially and then he runs for FIFA president against Gianni Infantino can't actually in order to do that you need to have a second a, a support from one of the federation presidents and then nobody actually wanted to ostracize themselves from the FIFA cronies by promoting an American journalist who had reported on the corruption and everything but he tried to change the system in process he did similar things albeit not running for president of the U.S. Soccer Federation when he saw all of the flaws that clearly existed with it and all of the rot that needed to happen within that he was part of the furniture at Sports Illustrated for the better part of 
two decades, and he was fired in the early months of the pandemic after challenging pay cuts to his co-workers, not necessarily because of him. And I would say, I wouldn't say that he was a pioneer, but he's one of many journalists since then that we've seen do their own independent thing between their Substack, their website, or their podcast or something, and then not be beholden to editorial control and content from a bigger thing, and just to quintessentially do him and be him. Um, on that note, Rabbi, you put into way better words than I ever could have the thoughts on what we'll miss about his writing. You'd already mentioned earlier, but do you want to prime any of our listeners for reading the piece that you had on the Holding the Highline Substack this weekend? Thanks. I I I appreciate that, and I appreciate Mark's words. Um, it was. It, I'll just be honest. Um, it came from a really selfish place and a really sad place, and the selfish, sad place was essentially seeing about a hundred soccer writers say some version of the experience that Mark Turner just expressed, expressed, which is, boy, it was great to meet Grant Wall. He is a a, a great person to meet and per, in person, and he helped encourage my writing. And I was like, I feel so sad. I never met him, and I, I never had him encourage my writing. You know, I never had a Twitter inter- engagement with him um, even, which is fine. That's normal. There's lots of people on Twitter. And there are lots of people who are really, really important and busy, and I don't expect them to respond to my boring tweets. Um, but I, I, I think that that is great. The other thing is, Matt, you and I both know this. Um, I don't really run in a USMNT circle. I've never covered a USMNT game because um, I'm really happy at my kind of niche in the soccer world being club soccer, women's soccer, women's college soccer, USL soccer. I cover lots of soccer. And I really enjoy it. And I do not need to take a seat from someone who really wants to be at a national team game. I got to cover one USMNT match um, and it was an absolute blast um, and, a, and a career highlight also. But anyways, um, I felt like all of the tributes that I'd seen written about Grant Wall were from other writers who wanted to talk about what he was like as a person and what he meant to the game. Um, and what he meant for American sports writing. And I just thought to myself, that's not why I love Grant Wall. Why I love Grant Wall is the Beckham experiment and the way he wrote it. And the way he wrote it was it gave me license to write. I mean, I read the Beckham experiment at a fairly early stage in when I was a soccer writer. Um, And I think at the time I had thought, you know, to be a full-time professional soccer writer or to submit to a major American um, platform like um, uh, Howler or The Athletic or The New York Times or The Washington Post, you needed to be in some sort of rarefied air that I was not capable of. And then Grant Wall wrote this very human, very approachable, very dogged, very, very um, sweat equity um, book where all he did was pound the pavement and show up at Galaxy Training day after day and get the interviews and ask the right people in the media ecosystem for access. And then he got it. And then the cool thing about the Beckham experiment that I expressed briefly in the in the article I wrote um, is not that he spent time being a gadfly on the shoulder of David Beckham. That would have been pretty easy. The cool thing was he decided that there was a whole nother story there, which was I got to spend time with Alan Gordon and I got to go to Alan Gordon's 
apartment, and I got to go watch Alan Gordon coach 12-year-old girls in Costa Mesa in order to figure out what is the upstairs-downstairs nature of this LA Galaxy situation um, and spend time with Rude Hullet on on watching how he coaches or mis miscoaches, um, watching um, Abel Xavier being, you know, showing up at training all in a white caftan and white beard looking like a freak, you know, like just just absolute mania and, and really getting into those crazy, crazy stories. It just takes shoe leather, you know, just showing up and and then writing what you see and then writing it, um, you know, precisely, but clearly and not gilding the lily, just just being an everyman and being a, a zealot, as they say in, in this world, just being the guy who's present, the Forrest Gump. Um, who's there for all these big moments in American soccer? Being the right guy at the right, the right place at the right time, and and to some degree that was Grant Wall. Um, he was a good writer, but his hard work was probably the most outstanding aspect of his character. He was just always there. I I want to just chime in on that because gosh, so much of what you just said, it just resonates so hard. I mean, you just strike the target with almost everything you said there and i think the one thing that came across to me in the way that grant worked and again very proximate to that for a mere two hours but then again watching from afar is his writing the way he went about his craft i'm sure he must have had some degree of anxiety as we all do right am i writing the right thing is it good enough is it going to resonate i want to read it that just didn't appear to be apparent in his writing his writing was i did the work i did the legwork Here's the truth. As I see it, that's all I'm here to do is share this story. Yes, it was narratively hung together. It was it was good. It was really well written. But it just didn't display any, any anxiety. There was no desperation. There was no love me, love me. Aren't I the best? You know, subscribe to this, that, and the other. Of course, he had his newsletter. And he encouraged people to subscribe to that. And people still should. But I'm, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for. Relaxed is the wrong word. It's just mm-hmm. his writing relaxed. But... I don't know. It was certainly a unique voice. And Matt, one of the... I just want to say one thing about that is he edited without polishing to a mirror shine. Yeah. And and to that degree, I always appreciated that. Like, it all, it was all well-written. There weren't wasted words, but it didn't need to be, you know, too much. It didn't need to be ridiculously over-the-top perfect and, like, I don't know. There was just something... Just very warm, approachable human. You said it well, Matt, Mark. Um, really, really, like, clear, but not excessive. <clears throat> Matt, you said something in the intro I just wanted to pick up on quickly. You said that Grant, um, and I understand why you'd say this, this would make sense, that Grant was taken to the hospital, hospital in an ambulance. And, of course, he wasn't. He was taken in an Uber. And the only reason I mention that is not to pick you up, is but it's to... I don't think we want to get into conspiracy theories necessarily, but Grant obviously returned to the U.S. this evening. And, um, you know, we know that the American media, thankfully, have possession of his electronic devices. His body is now back in the U.S. The circumstances around his death are weird. And so I'm just hoping we can get some more clarity in that regard. Um, you know, the whole the whole idea of him having gone from the stadium to a hospital in Anuba as opposed to an ambulance in and of itself is just weird. So anyway, I don't want to just uh, mention that. 
Okay, I don't, maybe we're doing a little bit of warring fact checks here, uh, Turner, but actually um, uh, Mark's brother Eric has since tweeted that actually he was taken to a hospital in an ambulance. The Uber was, there were colleagues, and then Celine that followed in an Uber with that. Um, so that's been, um, I so, so to that point, Turner, Mark Turner, um, there has been, there was, there, there was a lot of conspiracy theory going on, as USMNT Twitter wants to do. We'll get to in a bit of it about what it's doing with Geogate. But so I could understand that the facts were coming out in real time with time zone changes and everything. And certainly the emotions on the side of Celine and of Eric, who have relatively public social media accounts, that they were almost giving live updates to. Um, Mark, I, I agree with you. We don't know all the facts. An investigation should be done and everything. I don't want to jump on conspiracies or anything, but it should be pointed out that Grant went by, like it was on CNN. It was on MSNBC mm. news outlets that would only passively cover the World Cup for a minute or two a night that are focused on geopolitics or what happened with the um, with the runoff election in Georgia talked about this, had headlines for this, had chyrons for this. It is not unprecedented in dictatorships, in places where human rights are not well respected around the world, and then a journalist tries to confront that, and then something happens to them. I am in no way suggesting that Qatar or FIFA or anybody of that level, Jamal khashoggi Grant Wall or anything, but I think an mm -hmm. investigation should be done. I'd like to know what the circumstances were for his death. Grant was pretty open in all of his social media and his content that he had been to the hospital very briefly for two points while at the um, World Cup. His ultimate final podcast that he did with um, uh, his co-host, whose name I can't remember, who Chris Whittingham. Okay, Chris, Chris. I... Chris, I've been meaning to have you on the podcast. If you're listening to this, I apologize for getting your name wrong. I apologize for not being prepared, listeners. But so on the ultimate final episode of uh, his podcast with Chris Whittingham, he mentioned that he did have bronchitis. Um, uh, Rabbi, you and I mentioned as well earlier, like 48 is relatively young to die, but it's not uncommon to wear random, undetected, um, uh, you know, heart conditions. Things can happen. There should be an investigation. There should be an autopsy. If it hasn't happened already, some of that, if it's relevant, should be released to the public. I really, really hope that this was just a random health thing and Grant just didn't have the support and care that he needed in that moment, unlike how – and Mark's messaging me now that he's 46, not 48. I apologize, <laughs> No, I'm 46. You're 46. Grant Wall was 48. Um. You know, I that just was this is a Christian Erickson situation that just went the wrong side. I really hope that that's the case. Yeah. If it's not, I think a proper investigation should be done. And if it turns out that this is in any way connected with um, the Qatari government or whoever was managing the World Cup, um, and this was because of what he did in protest over the LGBTQ rights and with in Qatar, or how promises were made that were not. Uh, kept in that uh, or if it had anything to do with ultimately what was his final piece about migrant workers and everything that that gets that you know that that FIFA takes that to the woodshed and actually engages in full radical change and like that has to be that has to be the final straw for FIFA saying like we done screwed up and we didn't even hold Qatar accountable when they broke a bunch of their promises and everything this now completely changes how we go about evaluating everything so go ahead Rabbi. I just wanted to add, this is some recent late-breaking news. This came out just a couple hours ago. A Qatari photographer named Khalid al-Mislam um, has died while covering the World Cup, and there's no known cause. Also, to, just to 
a nice, healthy young individual who fell ill recently. I have no other information than that tweet, but um, and I have no conspiracy theories whatsoever. But there will be some questions throwing around now that you know it's not one but two journalists at, uh, who are you know relatively young, relatively healthy um, of what's going on down here. Yeah, you know, and Grant, um, Grant went out to Qatar in advance of the World Cup. I mean, talk about the, the, the rights of migrant workers. He'd already beaten that beehive once with his stick. So he was a known he was a known individual. He was, you know, in inverted commas, an agitator for the right causes and for the right reasons. So do the dots join? We don't know that yet, but it's yeah. yeah. If if foul play was ultimately found to have been involved, then Wall's death, along with the death of all the migrant workers that have been involved in this, will just further shroud this tournament in controversy and violence. And if that ends up being the case, then I think on some level, Grant's blood is on FIFA's hands, and those hands continue to be stacked and filled with Qatari money, legitimate and illegitimate. So, um, rest in peace, Grant. Rest in power. Uh, may you be. May your memory be a blessing to your family members, your friends, the people who interacted with you, and the people who read your stuff, read your content. Um, on that note, there's no easy way to do a transition, guys. But let's actually talk about actual soccering stuff. Um, earlier today, it was made official um, that uh, Austin FC are signing Giassi Zardes, striker and free agent, formerly of the. Colorado Rapids. Um, uh, Turner, I'll go to you first. Um, your thoughts on this move as it relates to a Verity perspective, and given that we here in Rapids Twitter can kind of be caught in our own echo chamber of toxic- toxicity, as someone who was paying attention to MLS vaguely and was aware of Giassi and what he did with Galaxy and with Columbus Crew, what were your thoughts prior to this morning about what Zardis was with the Rapids or otherwise? Um, well, I don't know that I have too much of an opinion as to what Zardis meant to the Rapids, and I'm sure there are plenty who are listening to this who are going to have those opinions, so um, I, I, I'll leave them to that. I will say that from my perspective, as an ML, looking at him as an MLS player and as a U.S. men's national team player, I've always been very impressed by him. Uh, I think his output um, suggests that you know he, he can clearly continue to contribute at this level. I know he didn't have the greatest time at the Rapids, but he does have a good track record. And I still, he's th- I still think he's, you know, legitimately still on the fringes of the U.S. men's national team and could put that jersey on again, assuming that, um, you know, he strikes fire in in Austin. In addition to liking him as a player, thinking he's a talented individual, thinking he can definitely contribute to Austin's attack, uh, I also like him because when because the two times I've seen him at Q two. Uh, he's made me smile on both occasions. Most recently was with the U.S. men's national team, which, of course, he scored the winning goal. I think it was against Qatar, right? If I remember rightly. Uh, and I was there for that game, and so that was wonderful. Prior to that, the first time I ever saw him in the flesh at Q2 Stadium was when he came with Columbus Crew. It was Austin's first season. And if you remember, Austin were drawing goose eggs for the first couple of home games and were freaking out, worried that, some other team was going to wheel in and some other team was going to score first and register the first victory at Q2. And so when Columbus showed up, was actually in the front line, we were worried that he might be that guy. And he had a terrible day that day. <laughs> he had several opportunities to score point blank and proceeded to, to guff them all. And so I was very happy with him that day as well for completely different reasons. So, um, But in seriousness, Austin need. Austin need uh, this type of player 
perhaps more so than any other. They don't really have an out-and-out line leader. You know, Maxi Uruti did a decent job of that this last season, but that's not really his forte. I think Musa Jite still has a lot to learn. Obviously, they released Danny Hosen uh, in the offseason. Um, and, and even though Danny was a good player, a good squad player, he was never that guy, again, who was going to lead that, that the, the forward line game in, game out, and register somewhere between 10 to 15 goals a season so that Drew didn't have to put this team on his back again next year. So I think it's a good pickup for Austin. Um, I know. Are you going to miss him at the Rapids? Rabbi, should we be missing Jossie's artists? A little bit. We should. Um, you know, the the... the... He scored 10 goals in MLS last year, nine for the Rapids and one for Columbus. Um, he underperformed his expected goals, which meant that he got into position to score even more goals. I, I had a, I wrote an article midseason when we signed him or roughly shortly after we signed him where I said that the over under on him was 12 goals. So unfortunately, he hit the he hit the under. The reason that I lament slightly his release is that the Rapids had a pretty good season in 2019 and 2020 with Kai Kamara. And then we decided that um, there wasn't much tread left on the tire and we let him go. He wound up with Minnesota and then he spent the rest of 20 and then he spent the next year in Finland. And then this last year he was back with Montreal um, and Matt, he scored nine goals uh, for Montreal at the age of the tender age of 37. He turns 38 this year. Um, and he's back, going to be back for another year in MLS, I think. Um, Kai Kamara is a different animal. Uh, he has a reputation for kind of burning through a locker room pretty quick. Jossie Zardes, as Matt noted in a tweet earlier today, is kind of the opposite. He has a reputation for being a good guy. I mean, to the degree that when things were really going poorly with the Galaxy, um, at some point they shifted him to fullback and he did it without complaining, which is crazy. Um, you know, that's. That's the kind of guy that he is. And I, I think um, that being said, uh, if you look at the details, um, Marcelo Balboa and um, and Richard Fleming and a couple other folks got into the nitty gritty details on Twitter earlier today about the contract. The only reason that it was a good move for the Rapids to get rid of him is that if the Rapids had re-signed him, there were certain contractual obligations of monies that the Rapids would have had to have sent to Columbus, which I find kind of odd, but I think it was probably a smart move on Jossie's um, sense in that he could declare himself a full-on free agent with, you know, all the, um, you know, the, the sky's the roof on how much he could earn. So, um, you know, I see why it worked out this way. Um, I think uh, letting him go is fine. He wasn't exceptional for the Rapids, but a second year, he might have been just as good or even more productive. I think the real challenge, Matt, is that the Colorado Rapids are now looking to replace the players at multiple positions, and they don't look like they really have the ability to do that very well because they don't have a big open wallet. Yeah, so um, a few things, you know, I'll say in 20 years, are we going to remember Jossie's artist playing for the Colorado Rapids? Probably not that much. He's going to be a... You know, he's going to be a pub trivia kind of question. Like, I don't know. Do you remember, Mark, that in 2005, Jeff Cunningham was a Colorado Rapid for one year 
and he scored 12 goals in 26 games. Why do I remember that? Because I was looking for a bit on this, and I'm wondering, hmm, Jeff Cunningham seems like a journeyman MLS striker who would have randomly played for the Rapids at one point, and sure enough, that's what his Wikipedia page <laughs> says. This is the kind of research that you subscribe to holding the high line for, yeah. here, folks. That's, so It's like it's like him and Edson Buttle and Carl, Carlos Valderrama. Did you know that Carlos Valderrama played for the Colorado Rapids? He did for one whole year. At the age of, like, 47, probably. That's right. um, so, yeah, so I think there's an aspect more like 37, but still. So uh, I think it'll be I think the thing that I'll miss, as I mentioned earlier, is that he was a he was a safe bet from a DP standpoint because he had a not terrible floor because he was relatively healthy and because we knew what he could do. He was a known quantity in MLS, but at the same time, he didn't have a very high ceiling. This is the argument that you get into the last couple of years with Columbus crew fans who would be standing for Zardes to get back into the national team and everything. He knew the dance moves. If he was working in a system that was built around his skill sets and you put him in a position to get tap-ins, he would generally convert them. He was a domestic, lower-level DP, probably TAM equivalent of Chicharito Hernandez, realistically. Um, He was a good teammate. Uh, The first game that he ever started with the Colorado Rapids, he was interviewed by Connor Cape after the full-time whistle, and it was right before the next game against, the next game was against RSL, and he was asked about that, and he said, oh, there are rivals, we really want to beat them. So from day one, he was a burgundy boy. He had that proverbial dog in him as well. Um, uh, Turner, I'm pretty sure already, he's already like, I don't like FC Dallas and Houston anymore. I want to win Copa Tejas. But fundamentally, he was a good human being. He was a good teammate. He was about the team. He was very quick every single time he was praised. He gave credit to the coaching staff, give credit to Roldy Harris, who worked with him very closely with the other strikers, give credit to his teammates. And he was very, uh, he was very quick to accept responsibility with the failures and everything that were going on. Uh, uh, guys, you might remember the 6-0 drubbing against Philadelphia Union earlier in the season, and Zardis was trotted out as the one player that we got um, uh, post-game for that and everything. And I asked Zardis about the defensive structure and everything and about how the first goal kind of opened up the floodgates for Philly and everything. And he mentioned, you know, honestly, we were trying to press in a mid-block, and I could have closed down the center backs for early that could have led to that first ball over the top that then, I can't remember whether it was Estevez or Gustavo Vicea, one or both of them got burned on that play. But here's a striker who got subbed out before when it was 3-0 in a game that was 6-0 when they had no possession. He had nothing to do directly with any of the failures on the goals. And he was acknowledging, I could have done a better job pressing on that first outlet ball that got them the goal and got them running. And maybe that changes the outcome of the game or at least gives us a better chance going into the going into halftime. So that was the kind of person he is. That is the type, type of person I'm sure he will absolutely be for, um, for Austin FC. And honestly, I think it's the best move for all parties. Rabbi, as you mentioned earlier, you know, if we're talking about he didn't meet the 10 goal threshold with the Rapids. So I think that was one of the triggers. He obviously didn't make the national team for the World Cup. So that was another clause with the transfer fee as well. And then re-signing would have been another. So I don't know. Would that have been 200K in allocation money that ultimately would have gone to Columbus? Would that have been 500K? And look, at the end of the day, if the MLSPA salaries come out, you know, in May or whenever for after the primary transfer window closes and it ends up being that Zardis is making a million dollars with Austin. I, I don't know that it ever made sense for the Rapids to bring him back at more than around what Barrios and Rubio were making. So I think it's the best move for all parties, provided that Zardis doesn't score a hat trick against the Rapids this year. Um, anything else you want to say? Go ahead, Rab. Hey, Matt, as well, that, you know, your, uh, your, your question there around him making a million dollars. I, honestly, I think he's going to come in just south of that, but I think that number's probably pretty good. 
And then when you consider that Danny Hoston was essentially making that this last year, he was making nine, nine fifty plus bonuses. I know. It's mind blowing. I mean, I think Danny Hoston He's half as good as Andre Shinyashiki and he makes five <laughs> times as much oh, as Andre Shinyashiki. Don't, don't invoke the name of the man I love. Don't do that. Um we Mark, we 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 all love him. We all love on. We all love 2019 uh, MLS Rookie of the Year Andre Shinyashiki uh, on this podcast. <laughs> Anyhow, um, you know, Danny Hoshin scorer of the greatest goal in Austin FC's history, the over-the-shoulder spinning volley. I'll go to my grave defending that goal, despite all of the incredible strikes we saw Drew see this last year. But to consider that you're essentially paying Zardes there or thereabouts the same money you're paying Houston, given his experience, yes, I know Danny had experience too, but given his goal-scoring record, which Houston did not possess, despite you know a couple of seasons in California where he had high high watermark years, um, and also you know a big thing for Josh Wolf is the character of the individual, and I'm already hearing out of Austin's front office. You know, I've had more than one person. The first thing they've said about Zardis is he's a really nice guy. Like their first observation was, "Oh, he's tall," or "Oh, he's you know I've seen him on the training field. He's be fast," or you know I like his tattoos. It was he's a really nice guy. Comes across as a really nice guy, and that's going to be important to Josh Wolf because the one thing that they did a really good job of in the second year at Austin was continue to build the locker room, right? The camaraderie of the locker room, um, and that togetherness, that spirit took Austin arguably further than it should have gone this last year. So hopefully more of the same next year with Zardis uh, now contributing. Mark, one follow-up question there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Will he be the first uh, Will he be the first player to cross and play in both sides of the Anthony Precourt Memorial Derby? Because we don't I'm, count Hector Jimenez because he never played with Columbus against Austin, right? Well, Stuber was in Columbus. Stu, was it Stuber? Uh, Steve, I don't know if Stuver played for Columbus. Can somebody fact check that? But he was there. Well, I'm okay. So he's not the first Columbus player to play for Austin, but I believe he would be the first player to play in the head to head for both teams. Well, possibly. I guess there's two different questions. Maybe we're wrong there. I'm not sure. I don't know. Mark, do we as do we care any more about this, or or, or by, have bygones been bygones other than the fact that you know Anthony Prevort's the most annoying? No, he's not. The mo- I was about to say he's the most annoying MLS owner, but I still feel like Kroenke owns that. And then I would have said, oh, Kroenke isn't on Twitter, so he's the most annoying MLS owner on Twitter. But then I remembered he shall not be named in in Portland who should sell both of his teams. But we're going to move on from that, guys. Uh, let's get into the actual World Cup. Rabbi, I'll throw it to you first. Um, uh, we obviously have the two semifinals this week. Uh, Battle of the two old men that are impossible to not love in Luka Modric and Croatia taking on Argentina and Lionel Messi on the other side. Uh, shockers of the world, uh, Morocco, the first African, first Arab team to make it to a World Cup semifinal taking on France, who I think now with Brazil being out are definitely the finals. I should be pointing out, listeners, by the time you're listening to this, probably possibly both at the very least Argentina and Morocco has already been decided. But Rabbi, what have you made of the tournament so far? I believe we have not podcasted since the start of the tournament. So your thoughts on the whole and then thoughts on uh, what happened with the U.S., uh, Geogate notwithstanding. Wow. Uh, yeah. Cover cover two weeks of the World Cup having not and you have like five minutes. Go. Um, yeah, I thought the U.S. made a good showing. Uh, this was roughly about what I expected from them. I definitely was rooting for them to get through that um, uh, knockout game that they couldn't quite get past. But, you know, that's just how it goes. Uh, they, they made a great showing against England. 
Um, and then we will get to GeoGate eventually. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of, we're not really going to talk about this in, in context of GeoGate, but I think there's been a lot of scorn also recently for Greg Berhalter, whether he sets up the team for success, um, whether he could have gotten more out of this talent-laden American team. I think he got about as much out of them as he could. There are a few um, positions and players uh, that, at which the U.S. is, is just not quite ready ready for prime time, and they, they need to, you know, kind of hope for 2026 to help move things along. So um, I've really enjoyed it. I think there have been a lot of surprises and a lot of really enjoyable um, twists and turns. Brazil going out uh, was quite the shocker. Um, Japan um, making it through the group was was a big move that I that I actually um, was, was excited about. Um, I thought Iran put on a pretty good performance in their group as well. Um, there are a few other teams, I think Argentina dropping a shocker in their group only to kind of reorganize themselves and then eventually make it through Germany getting knocked out before the knockout round. Another, you know, big surprise, but also another one where I said, you know, Spain and Germany both have some chinks in their armor. They both look, uh, uh, weak in spots or, or questionable. There's positions that are, that are not strong enough, um, and I think Netherlands also looking at them and saying, like, there are a lot of good players on the Netherlands team, but they do not look like the strongest team. Um, I did not listen to most people who told me that uh, England was not going to beat France. I said, this is the best English team in forever. They really are talented everywhere. Jude Bellingham is really putting it together um, to have one of the best tournaments for a young player uh, in a long time since maybe James Rodriguez in uh, 2014. Uh, just kind of lit things up, um, and then of course I was proved wrong in France, pounded them, pounded them into dust. Although some would argue that the referee gave them a little bit of assistance in that one, um, or at least Harry Kane, you know, skying that second uh, PK. So uh, it's been a fantastic tournament up till now. Absolutely no complaints. Um, I've really enjoyed every moment of it. Uh, I know that there have been some complaints though about um, the quality of officiating, the quality of the um, broadcast uh, uh, by Fox. There have been some um, good commentary teams, some questionable commentary teams, and the pre-game, post-game, halftime team has been like uh, one or two really talented individuals carrying six or seven really borderline incompetent individuals. So that's been a mixed bag, um, and I think that um, Argentina is going to win it in the end. I said a lot of words. <laughs> uh, Mark Turner, your thoughts on, on the tournament so far to the extent that you've watched it? Uh, your thoughts on England ultimately um, coming home maybe slightly after the postcards? Um, and then can you give us, similarly to you being a check on USMNT Twitter's kind of worst impulses uh, as someone who looked at the U.S. versus England from a different perspective. What can you say about that match? Uh, okay, so obviously you and I had this conversation offline, Matt. So uh, to the listeners, I'm probably going to sound like a bit of a Dudley Do-Right, um, but I'm, I'm not going to apologize for this. This is just my reality. I, I've really kept my distance from this World Cup. Uh, I, I, From the day it was announced, it clearly with you know, the decision itself was rotten, the you know, many thousands of migrant workers who have died in order to construct stadia that will not be used after the after this event. 
Um, and then some of what's gone down during the tournament itself, it, it's just le- less, left an incredibly bad taste in my mouth. That being said, uh, I did watch all of England's group games, so uh, included the US, of course. And so I agree with pretty much everything Rabbi just said. I don't agree with, well, <laughs> but based on word of mouth and me watching the highlights on YouTube, because I didn't see the game live, I don't agree with Rabbi's assertion that France pounded England into dust. It seems like, generally speaking, England were the better team on the day. Uh, Kyle Walker is the greatest player in the world <laughs> because he shut down the greatest player in the world. So that's how that works. Um, and then Harry Kane, you know, is by by any measure one of the world's greatest penalty takers, and he missed a penalty, and that happens. Uh, one of my favorite players of all time is Francesco Totti, who, when he was playing for Roma, uh, missed five penalties in one season and said, "I'm the captain. I'm going to keep taking them." <laughs> And eventually I'll score one again and then I'll start scoring them again. So um, I wouldn't have had anyone but Harry Kane take that penalty. I won't have anyone but Harry Kane take the next England penalty. Um, so, you know, could, have been, could England have done more? Yes, they could have done. Without the little in Morocco and their achievements so far, which have been significant, you have to say, having the managed to get past France, there was a a path of lesser resistance to the final than, than, than they faced previously, or maybe that any team in living World Cup history will face, given that Morocco are probably the lowest-ranked team ever to make the semifinals, or at least to make them you know, in the last sort of, 30 years. So um, it's a shame. It's a shame that things didn't work out for England. But by the same token, I'm going to finish up by saying, and this kind of really struck me today, and I actually um, I vocalized this on Twitter, I would never, I would never cheer against my country. I will never want my country to do anything other than win. That being said, I can't get away from the fact that there is a large part of me that's very relieved that England um, won't be winning this World Cup because I don't want their name on this trophy this year. I don't want for England to indelibly be associated with the World Cup in Qatar for all time. And so if that means another four years of pain and uh, David Bedeal and Frank Skinner coming back again to <laughs> regale us with yet another version of Three Lions, uh, I guess that's just a pain and suffering I'm going to have to take, but I'm, I'm happy to do it. Just a few individual bullet points from me. Um, there are other people who've been more consistently and more thoroughly covering the World Cup and everything. So I'll just go through. Tyler Adams was absolutely fantastic on the pitch, off the pitch. Um, his response when he was confronted in the press conference by the um, Iranian uh, state media, I think, proved to me he is Captain America. I know Pulisic scored that goal, you know, got hit in the not down below Z's if we're believing him. And then Fox Soccer tweeted out Captain America. I'm sorry. The only Captain America that I want to hear about for the next four years is Tyler Adams. Tim Ream in the twilight of his career coming in and then being so fantastic next to the two center backs that he had to play for as the old man and everything was absolutely fantastic. And what he could be as the old hen, you know, with a bunch of young kids and everything. Rabbi is freaking out and just so excited at me saying that. Um, you know, it was fantastic, and to have a, a two-sided uh, full America in the back four at the World Cup was absolutely spectacular. Well, I did say that Pulisic was not Captain America. Um, he had three goal contributions, and this one finally got his World Cup goal in the de- decisive game against Iran. was absolutely fantastic. I think this U.S. group clearly showed a lot of youth and potential, 
And I feel comfortable in saying that they were the protagonists in the three games that they played in. They expended a lot of energy to get out of the group that ultimately set them up to fail against the Netherlands. Unfortunately, they absolutely have reset the failures and the emotions around the team and the federation and the fan base from what happened in 2018. I still think that a lot of what we believe or want to believe their ceiling is, is based on potential with their youth that has yet to be tapped in collectively at the club level or internationally as a group or at an individual basis. And so I still think that a lot of work needs to happen for them to come up against, you know, a team that we would consider a traditional power, a Netherlands and Argentina, um, even a Croatia now who've made three semifinals and six World Cup <clears throat> appearances that in order for them to get there. And I'm still not sure that they're going to get there without having just the depth of options and players playing regularly in Champions League throughout the eleven let alone having a player that's considered one of the top 10 in the world, which I think clearly they do not have. And I'm not sure that they will, um, at least with this current group of players. Um, other individual stuff, the officiating, as you mentioned earlier, Rabbi, was absolutely abhorrent. Uh, Netherlands, Argentina should have more likely ended 9v9 than it did 11v11, uh, but it turned into Fight Club and it was extremely entertaining, albeit not necessarily fun soccer. Her Bernard was an absolute meme with Saudi Arabia and I loved it. Put that uh, press conference, that uh, halftime talk that he gave them and take that, combine it with uh, Jesse Marsh's uh, speech that he gave to RB when he was at uh, when they were at Liverpool a couple years ago in Champions League and inject both of those into my veins. I'm normally not someone who likes penalties. I think it's the least bad option we have for deciding a game at the end of 120 minutes. But every single one of them has been tactical and eventful and exciting and decisive that has made them really, really good. I'm not excited to watch Argentina, Croatia go nil nil through 120 minutes. I am very excited to see the penalties end after five rounds, one nil with what those capers are capable of achieving. And Morocco has been extremely effective at what they're doing in a way that I think only a Rapids fan who loved the 2010 Rapids under Gary Smith can. Um, with that, folks, before we get to GeoGate, uh, I want to throw it to all three of us, and I want to do your predictions. What's your final, and who ultimately wins? I'm rooting for Morocco first, Messi second. I think it will be Argentina versus France in the final, and I think France will win. Turner, your predictions. Oh, I mean, it's okay for me to say I don't care. <laughs> Rabbi, what's your prediction? You're so much fun, Turner, but I appreciate... We talked about this on an earlier podcast that um, the way I deal morally with the World Cup is enjoying the soccer while acknowledging that the death of the migrant workers, that the treatment of LGBTQ individuals by Qatar, by the the corruption that they got it, uh, is all uh, abhorrent and horrendous. And um, FIFA needs to take a stand against all these things in the future. Um, you can you can be upset and protest and also try and watch soccer or. You can take the high road and boycott it all. But I uh, think France is going to have no problem getting past Morocco. I think that Argentina will find a way to get a 1-0 win over Croatia in what I agree, Matt, will probably be a violent and boring soccer game. And then um, Argentina will find a way to squeak through over France. Okay, um, with that, guys, let's get on to GeoGate. Um, Greg Berhalter spoke at a non-soccer but journalist leadership conference, I think is the best way to describe it. Uh, reports are that that was supposed to be off the record. And he goes off about how um, they had a situation with the player at the World Cup. They discussed internally as a coaching staff what to do. He wasn't giving the right amount of effort. They talked about buying him a plane ticket to actually send him home. 
Uh, they agreed that that player had to apologize and explain why he was apologizing to the coaching staff, to the teams. And then ultimately the players then confronted him about his lack of effort, his lack of commitment and him being a diva and um, a certain word that starts with B that Turner and I both said before we hit the record button that we will not say now. I think it's pretty obvious to tell that anybody that was looking at this know that that player was Gio Reyna. There's since been reports that have come out of that. The Athletic had a really good article about that, talking about the confrontation and everything. There's been conflicting reports about whether or not the coaching staff actually put it to a vote, whether or not to send him home, whether or not they went to the other 25 players and had them take a vote. And potentially that vote was 13 to 12 to keep him. So you want to talk about like razor thin electoral college margins all going on with that. Gio Reyna has since posted on Instagram he apologized he took some responsibility he wasn't mature he let the emotions get the best of him and ultimately he made a really bad go of it in the first couple weeks after that he was okay but ultimately he was ineffective rabbi i'll throw it to you first i don't think there's any question at this point that going into it i was like what is berhalter doing there's something else that's going on here geo plays really poorly in that second half against the netherlands i'm like okay clearly he was hurt they were doing something to save face I can't hold anything against Burhalter. Now I think it's pretty clearly this wasn't Geo versus Triple G. This was Geo versus everybody, and he made it about him. Yeah, uh, totally agree. You know, I it, I sound like a schmuck when I say during the whole group stage, we don't really know all the facts. Let's reserve judgment. But I often do that with a lot of things where where I think like being ill informed and throwing out, you know, random thoughts and ideas of what might be going on or screaming bloody murder at the coach is always kind of dumb. Like, you just don't know the facts. So conjecture is not a great idea in that situation. And it turned out to be right. Um, what you said, Matt, was perfect. Uh, that, like, we didn't really know the facts. And ultimately, uh, Greg Berhalter was vindicated for making the right decision. Um, you know, I think this is all going to blow over. I think we're going to forget about this in just a couple weeks, honestly, and kind of just move on and with our lives and not really care about it. Um, and ultimately, what this means in a year, two years, four years for Gio Reyna is pretty much nothing. Um, in the sense that 20 year olds are dumb. They're dumb, guys. Like when you're 20, you're really dumb and you make a lot of bad choices. And everybody knows that. And you, um, get older and you mature, you start to make better choices and everyone forgives you. And so he said he's sorry. Um, the coach will probably reevaluate if, if Bar Berhalter is back, which I would be surprised at, not because I don't think he did a great job, but because being the head coach of the USMNT for two whole cycles is insane. It's just an exhausting job. I wouldn't want to do it. I think it's natural to do it for one cycle. But, um, you know, uh, uh, Reyna, for me, all is forgiven um, as long as he shows up and, and puts on the red, white, and blue and puts in a good shift next time. Um, that'd be a good sign that we can move on. Turner, your thoughts? And I saw a really good tweet uh, just maybe a couple hours ago that was like, you know, Marcus Rashford, uh, you know, wasn't going to have as much, was going to have a reduced role. And instead of being super pissy about it, he came in and gave it his all. And, um, you know, just your your thoughts on the situation and given how maybe you've seen a dichotomy throughout covering sports and how different players handle it differently and Gio couldn't have handled it worse. Well, firstly, I'm surprised it was Gio we were talking about. I thought it was Matt Turner. So this is <laughs> uh, I should say Gio Gates has like the really bad reboot of Stargate. Um, 
But so I think there are three things here. One, to Rabbi's point, a dumb 20-year-old entitled uh, overpaid soccer player acted poorly. Shocker, right? I mean, this happens the world over. It happens in locker rooms the world over. Uh, the fact that Gio had an error of judgment here and acted poorly and pouty, that's that's one thing that needs to be addressed. The second piece here is how it was addressed. Uh, the coach's decisions in regards to playing him, the amount of field time he was given during the World Cup, which is entirely at the coach's discretion based on what he's seeing in practices and based on his engagements with his players. I actually don't have issues with either of those things. Gio made some poor decisions. Gio was pulled to the rope for it. I'm good with that. What I'm not good with is this third piece, which is this coming out in public and, and Berhalter appearing to lead the charge on making this public. I don't know why he would do that. I know, Matt, you and I talked a little off mic, and I don't know how much of that you want to revisit here, so I'm not going to put you kind of in the spotlight, but you know, different people have different opinions for why Berhalter may have wanted to do that or why Berhalter is prepared to even engage in that conversation as opposed to saying, look, guys, Geo did a thing, we addressed it, line drawn, move on. I just feel that it's really unseemly, and um, I'm really, really shocked that Berhalter would do this. Uh, as immature as Geo has undoubtedly been, honestly, kind of smacks the maturity on Berhalter's part, too. I'm happy to, to revisit and reset what I said to you off pod, um, Turner, um, which is that uh, I think it's a really convenient situation that um, the understanding was that it was off the record to where Greg can uh, kind of hide behind that of, oh, this is something that I thought I was saying on background or in the context of talking about leadership. It's not my fault that this got out. At the same time, it's a really convenient way to have it get out in a way that respins things from a PR perspective admittedly brings truth to light in a way that I think was necessary for him to organically and healthily reassume the the position as head of the of the national team going into the next World Cup cycle and just not have USMNT Twitter completely come after it or, you know, borderline have, I don't know, tinfoil Ted organize a, a protest and maybe a January 6th thing of soccer house in Chicago or something like that. So I, I think it was, uh, there was clearly a, there was, uh, this was like a carefully crafted, like almost like PR chess game that was going out. And Burhalter took the high road after Gio had a limited, after Gio was not involved in the Wales game, or maybe he played seven minutes. I can't remember which one he only played seven minutes in. And then, uh, cause he came on in the second half against the Netherlands. Um, but so, and then he took the high road and then Gio on some level kind of, took the high road as well with the statement of I'm 100%. Uh, Greg doesn't need to explain to me or anybody else why um, uh, why they're not getting minutes. And then Gio Reyna's dad, Claudio Reyna, who is a very good friend and former teammate of Greg Berhalter, who is U.S. men's national team and American soccer royalty, jumps on Twitter spaces with Eric Winalda and goes off about on this whole personal thing and everything. And I think from that point, it turned on to it turned into a PR battle. And USMNT Twitter you know, wanting Berhalter fired even more every single game that Gio doesn't start or isn't the first attacking sub as opposed to Brennan Aronson. And so I think on some level to uh, to at least have PR be okay, but fundamentally win this within U.S. soccer, this had to get out in a way to where it was clearly looked like Gio was the villain. So I agree with you, 
Mark Turner that uh, that Berhalter didn't hand it particularly well. At the same time, I kind of don't blame him because he get, he's gotten a lot of crap that he absolutely deserved. Let's face it, Berhalter could win. They, they could have won this World Cup. They could come back and they could do a whole national tour, do, uh, you know, have a parade in New York, and there would still be USMNT fans booing him because they didn't win it in enough style. That is how toxic so much of this fan base is, which you are not a part of, Mark, and which Rabbi and I are clearly in the minority of compared to so many of those people with their own idiosyncrasies that I don't understand, and I fundamentally can't agree with it. It's a completely unhealthy choice to have, and it clearly is a choice at this point. So I think on some level, he wanted to win the PR battle. He figured clearly Reina's camp with his uh, with his representation, with his dad, were willing to fight dirty. Let me do this thing that I can pass off and ultimately not be at fault in because it was off the record, but fundamentally fight back in a way to where I can still coach this national team if I want to, but then also now I have an out for this player that's public that they made me make public in ways that I could not with John Brooks to where if he's not involved with the national team through the next World Cup cycle, I'm going to be given the benefit of the doubt as opposed to the player. I was kind of already leaning towards Greg Berhalter's side when Gio wasn't good enough. I long had thought that something was going on. I thought it was Gio was secretly injured or trying to play through injury, and he just wasn't fit. Clearly, there was more going on. Um, he has three and a half years to get much more mature, to get healthy, to become available. And then regardless of who the head coach is, I think he can prove that if he can boss it with Dortmund in Champions League on the second best team in the Bundesliga, that he's good enough of a player. And then if he just gets his mentality and his professionalism right, he absolutely should be a starter. But, you know, like fundamentally, you know, that's that's how I felt about it. And the other thing I don't fully get, and I, I realize I'm defending a Seattle Sounder on a Colorado Rapids podcast. So much of this has come back at Jordan Morris, but really they're mad at Jordan Morris for existing when it was Gio who threw a hissy fit about not starting over Wea or Pulisic, which I can't necessarily, I, I can't get mad at him for that. Um, if there's any person who should be really upset about this, it's Paul Areola, who absolutely would have made it all about the team. Would have, uh, he would have taken the Jossie Zardis route. He would have taken the Jossie Zardis route if Greg Berhalter came to him and said, you know, hey, Paul, we're really happy to have you. You're going to be important in training, but you're going to be just like Christian Roldan. Uh, you're not playing. You're not starting. A bunch of people are going to have to get injured and have to get yellow card for you to play and everything. And he would have said, I'm here for a coach. What can I do to help? And he would have been a vibes guy and there would have been no problem. And I think the MS USMNT would have ended up in the exact same place. But people are still going to crap on Jordan Morris and Paul Ariola simply because they're Euro snobs and those guys play in MLS. Um, I think that does it for our national team talk. Uh, Turner, if you'd like to skip out now since we're going to be oh no uh do we want to talk about the uh, mls tv rights i i can still skip out <laughs> okay okay mark, mark if you would like to leave you're welcome to you're welcome to leave all right cheers guys uh, uh, uh turn it where can uh people who want to follow you interact with you um on twitter uh which account should it be yeah just turner in verde and appreciate the follows and thanks for having me on tonight guys yeah hit him up if you want to go to a switchbacks game too folks he's in colorado springs you bet. Take All care. Right. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Now, I think the recording's still going, and it's just you and me, Rabbi. It looks like it is. Okay. Um, 
So, uh, Rabbi, I don't know if you saw, but earlier today it's come out that ESPN will not be pursuing anything with the MLS over-the-air TV rights, um, as that's kind of been negotiated now that we know what's going on with Apple TV. And then friend of the podcast, Jonathan Taylor Tannenwell, JTT, has also now said that Univision, he's being, uh, he said, breaking news tonight, I am told that Univision will not carry MLS regular season or playoff games in the new era of broadcast rights to start in the year. Um, Mark, this pretty much just leaves us with Fox. As we've seen with Fox, when they have exclusive rights to something, they tend to mail it in from a production standpoint and get a lot of really bland people who aren't really opinionated. Then there's sometimes some really good commentators who are super smothering, and Alexi Lawless, who is the only person bringing spice, but he overspices to overcompensate the uh, milk toastness of all of the other people that he interacts with. Um, Rabbi, your disappointment in ESPN and Univision not getting the MLS rights, um, and are we just going to watch uh, everything on Apple TV because, God forbid, we have to listen to uh, John Strong fail to even take a breath or let the game breathe? Yeah, I I, I think I'm worried about the free access. Um, uh, Apple TV doesn't have a huge reach, and if it's not on network television too much, then that's kind of worrisome. Um I assume that there's still some tricks up the sleeves that we haven't seen. I think there's still going to be some opportunities for some wider release, free access to MLS, because putting everything behind a streaming-only paywall is going to be a little tricky. Um, but, uh, yeah, I I, uh, I think the Spanish-language stuff is a little worrisome, too, um, you know, unless... I do think maybe Apple TV has a couple things still yet to reveal, like um, that they're going to make another big buy of another major sports league and then hook the two together. Or maybe they'll get the rights to Liga MX or they'll get the rights to Champions League or they've got the rights to the English Premier League or there's something else coming because just holding up Major League Soccer as your only tentpole is um, probably not a good move, but we'll we'll see. I mean, maybe this is the way they go for the first year, um, and they they hope that this is just a sports offering that their already existing Apple consumers will want to try, and something that will bring Apple um, soccer fans over to Apple who don't already have a subscription to Apple Plus. I don't know. I'm 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 not a I'm not a marketing wizard or a genius. I have a feeling that they've done the math to figure out why this makes sense. Um, and I, I, Matt, I got to be honest, I really cannot get upset about stuff about the national broadcast when at the end of the day, I'm really excited that Rapids fans who have been stuck in a local market where there have been, it's been impossible to get the team for an affordable price will now be able to do that. Um, Apple TV is totally affordable and reasonable way more so than um, Comcast was back in the day. Um, you know, you can get Apple TV for 80 bucks um, for the year, I think. Uh, and it's unclear whether there's a pay over the top for MLS or not. But even if it's you pay another $80 or $70 on top of that, you know, I was paying, you know, between 60 and $100 a month for cable uh, for Comcast in, in Denver. Um, just to get the rapids, and so uh, my quick back of the envelope math says one hundred and eighty, one hundred and sixty dollars is way cheaper than a hundred dollars a month. Yeah, the one thing that I push back or that I, uh, you know, uh, say yes and to on 
the price point rabbi is. I agree that relative to how most fans in most markets have had to pay to get their in-market TV rights and everything, the price point is understandable. And then you compound that with the fact that, you know, season ticket holders are getting that comp already as a part of their season ticket. I'm fine with that. And I agree. This is the what? So the, the first time Altitude TV became an issue, I believe, was the first year under Anthony Hudson, right? So I'll say 2018. So since uh, since hashtag don't block my altitude started, this will be the best year and the easiest year in which Rapids fans based in Denver, based in the state of Colorado, can get the rights to actually watch their team on uh, on their screens. So that's a good thing. Where I would push back to is that the price point, I think, is understandable for the diehards who are going to pay for it anyways. You know, it was 75 bucks back in the day about a decade ago for MLS Live that just got you everything, no blackouts whatsoever. And so I think that's an understandable price point. I don't know that the casual MLS fan buys in at that price, at that price point. I don't know that you see that how much am I paying just to get MLS on Apple TV is more than what I was paying to get Paramount Plus to get um, some versions of Hulu. I think if you buy it annually, and it's the most basic one, or even what you get for ESPN Plus. And so you compare it to how much soccer, how much sports do I get for just ESPN Plus? How much soccer do I get for just Paramount Plus? How much Premier League do I get for just Peacock? As opposed to I'm paying all of that just for MLS. So I agree with you. If they somehow get the English language or even the Spanish language, Leah and Mekis writes, then maybe that changes the calculus. I don't know that Apple TV is splashing on the Premier League even if with the relationship that they have with NBC, even with now Apple TV and Ted Lasso getting marketing licensing rights to Premier League players and merchandise and press and jerseys and stuff. So and the the big thing for me, um, as I mentioned with JTT's uh, report that Univision's not going on is I'm curious what happens to the over the cable um, Spanish language broadcast as well, because that was still a relatively low hanging fruit in MLS that they tried to but could have done a better job in terms of um, getting into, which is the, you know, the League MX fan who doesn't have an MLS team or just the Spanish language soccer fan who would be watching League MX or watching their home country, um, watching La Liga when it was on, when they could get it, who could come up with an MLS team to be their second or their third team and then watch them semi-regularly in Spanish because it was convenient for them. That now is potentially less accessible. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the Spanish language streaming market in ML in America to comment on if just getting that on Apple TV makes it super easy or if that's something that's going to transition as easily as I know it will for a lot of diehard fans um, who are looking for it in the English language. I'm not sure about that, but um, it's disappointing that um, two of the biggest partners, two of the biggest, the people, two of the biggest broadcasters that were all in on growing the game on having MLS content. Um, are now not going to be there. And I think it's a valid question now. Um, what happens to John Champion? What happens to Taylor Twelman, who's been fantastic? Um, you know, what happens to um, Hercules Gomez, who would be fantastic talent for anyone who is broadcasting on linear television, MLS, to get access to, um, and certainly would be fantastic talent to be added to Apple TV. Like, Mark, can you imagine if the if uh, Herc's Whip Around show, if they just transition that onto Apple TV for the Whip Around show, I'd watch that every single weekend, probably. And so I don't know what happens with that. There's still a lot of other moving parts, but those two initial dominoes give me concern. And at some point, Fox has to be thinking, we're the last man standing, MLS. You need us uh, to have you 
to for you to be on one of the big cable subscriptions more than we need you. Give us a decent deal since obviously we're not going to have exclusive rights and we're just going to keep doing our bare minimum, like super low budget public access, you know, broadcast studio and everything. And it's going to be Alexi being his usual self and everybody else is just going to be milk toast um, as they've pretty much all been at the World Cup. Milk toast and underinformed, unfortunately. But um, enough of my ranting and raving. Mark, shall we actually get to the one mad thing about this podcast, which is Kevin Cabral? Let's do it. Listeners, since past Thursday, the Colorado Rapids announced that they were signing designated player and French 23-year-old Kevin Cabral, formerly of the LA Galaxy. He will be a designated player for the Colorado Rapids in 2023. He made $1.65 million a year this past year in guaranteed compensation. That is right around what Skelshingashi was making. The only Rapids player, to my knowledge, making more than that in the history of the club would have been Tim Howard. Reports have since come out from Tommy Scoops, Tom Bogert, that the LA Galaxy are picking up 50% of Cabral's salary for the remainder of his contract. 2023 will be his third year in a five-year contract that he originally signed with the Southern California team. Um, Mark, he's a young, exciting winger. He gets a lot of really good open opportunities. He's good at finding space. He's good at exploiting space. He's also really bad at finishing. LA Galaxy fans would boo him when he was on the ball because they were so disappointed in him as being a dud of a designated player who costs a $6 million transfer fee and costs $1.6 million a year. Last year in MLS, he was second in terms of worst G minus XG, so goals minus X goals. So how poorly did you underperform in scoring based on the level of chances you got? Kevin Cabral was the second worst on that. He had a negative 4.3 on that. The only worst was Arojo, uh, Arajo from Atlanta United, who have a neg- who had a negative five goals minus XG. So Arajo should have scored five more goals than he actually did score. Cabral should have scored at least four, less likely five more goals than that. For reference, folks, tied for fifth was one Jonathan Lewis, who had a negative 3.1. Six goals, five assists in 61 games in MLS competition for Los Angeles Galaxy. Rabbi, your thoughts, and I guess now we can provide this with the context of he will not be paired up top with Jossie's artist. Nice. Um, well, in terms of the GXG that you brought up, uh, we can always hope that he pulls a Daniel Shallowy. Shallowy, uh, somewhat, I think infamously, infamously, although I don't think too many MLS fans think of this as infamous, um, had a terrible season, I think in like 2019, where he absolutely just biffed the bar and couldn't hit anything broadside of a boat and was a train wreck. And then the next year he came back and was great. Um, his GXG that one year was terrible and the next year it was perfectly adequate. Um, uh, so that's, like, I think, what basically Pork Smith and the Rapids FO is banking on. They're banking on a buy-low strategy, which is that the Galaxy are selling Cabral off for pennies on the dollar because he really was terrible this last year and that they they're still a talented soccer player underneath all that money that was spunked away on him um but it it just needs to be reinvigorated you know the right coach the right training the right partner a little bit of luck um a little bit more relaxation and Cabral will just bounce back to his regular self. Um, the alternative to this possibility is, of course, is the, the Juan Ramirez uh, uh, theorem, which is that you looked at a guy abroad, decided he was good, offered him way too much money, and turned out to be really, really wrong. 
Um, I think this is a smart move by Porrick Smith in the sense that you're buying low on a player who has a lot of promise. I also fully acknowledge this could come up completely bad. This like this might be a total nothing burger of a signing, um, which um, wouldn't be the first time the Rapids had gone out and made a big splash and come up uh, snake eyes. I, I think Stefan Eigner is the most notable of that. Yannick Boley is another version of that. Um, Sebastian Latou, although he was just kind of in it for the stretch run, so we weren't really expecting him to be kind of a game changer. Um, Jermaine Jones on some level. Uh, some Rapids fans remember James Jermaine Jones as if he was the spark that made the 2016 Rapids fantastic. The reality was he only actually played in nine games. Um, he, he was great in the nine games that he appeared in, but you know, you're talking about signing a guy for 34 games and then he, he's mostly hurt or unavailable um, and kind of turns out to be not a lot of anything. I don't know. I mean, I think if you're banking the whole season on this Kevin Cabral signing, you've got big problems. If he's a piece of a broader strategy, I feel good about where the Rapids are headed. Um, but we all know who this team is. This is Distressed Assets FC. This is a soccer team that is not going to go out and get Lionel Messi or some other really big name player. Um bring some guys in at the winter transfer window from Europe that we're really excited about. Um, there's not a lot right now that looks really promising down on the farm. Um, you're looking to bring up a couple of the young guys from last year who made a few moves. You're hoping that maybe Ollie LaRoz comes back um, healthy and gives you, you know, 15 good games this year. Um, you're hoping that Cole Bassett can stabilize the midfield um, now that he's back with the team. Um but whether Cabral is a game-changing winger uh, or just a guy you take a flyer on and maybe gives you three three goals and four assists, um, you know, it, it's it's an okay move, but not a really exciting move, and we shouldn't make too much of it. Matt, yeah. do you agree with anything I said? Was I just rambling incoherently? No, we're both in the same ballpark. Um, I did forget to mention, listeners, that there is a 50% sell-on clause as well, reported as well, so that um, for an out-of-MLS transfer as well. So if you're talking about if somehow the Rapids managed to resurrect Kevin Cabral and then you know add on to the value, which the LA Galaxy two years ago this time valued him at $6 million, keep in mind that 50% of that transfer fee gets cut off um, and you know we'll go to the LA Galaxy, who, I don't know if you've heard, Rabbi, are in desperate need of money given them getting caught for stuff uh, under the table with uh, um, one Christian Pavone a number of years ago. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't... They haven't caught LAFC yet, mm. but that's going to come. Believe me, that's going to come. <laughs> Rapids fans have a right to be skeptical. I want to give the player the benefit of the doubt in that he was a pressure... He was in a pressure cooker of a situation that I don't think necessarily worked for him tactically, and things just kind of snowballed in a really, really unhealthy, like, toxic way. You know, if you think about, like, fans booing their own player when they're on the ball, like, that's how much, like, he effectively got run out of town by angry LA Galaxy Twitter. Like, you know, Galaxy Twitter was treating Kevin Cabral like how USMNT Twitter treats Greg Berhalter. The only difference is that there weren't thousands of those people with season tickets to their games of guitar in the way that there was for, um, for Cabral down in Carson, California. So, that's one thing. I have to think this move certainly has to be like some level he has to feel disrespected or if he like, OK, like this is how little you value me. 
LA Galaxy. Like at some point, Mark, there almost has to be like a, a Robin Frazier, like motivational moment of, um, you know, like the, the scene in Moneyball where Billy Bean goes up to David Justice, I think it is, and he's in the batting cages and everything. And he's like the, you know, well, you're paying me $7 million a year to do this. He's like, no, remember the Yankees are picking up part of your contract. The Yankees are paying you millions of dollars a year to play against against them. That's what they think of you. Like there almost needs to be that kind of a conversation. Nice. And so I have to think, whereas well I can't remember how many with some of the African departures we've had recently, I can't remember how many native French speakers there are on the team anymore. I'm drawing a blank on that, but I have to think you come into a team where it's about the collective, where everybody's distressed assets FC, everybody has another team or a coach that they're pissed off at, that they're trying to get at. He's going to be welcomed in immediately, despite being, you know, an even more diverse player within a very diverse locker room and everything. And he's going to be around a bunch of guys that preach mentality for the collective and having that dog in you. And if that doesn't get a response out of him, then there's clearly a mentality issue that was not caught when the LA Galaxy initially scouted the guy that obviously Greg Vanny and the LA Galaxy weren't able to fix that ultimately you couldn't really deal with or anything. Um, where I have concerns, Mark, I was I was telling, I had a conversation over the weekend with someone going back to Moneyball of the Oakland A's and Billy Bean like in the years after Moneyball when everybody realized what was going on, it got more difficult for them because, okay, they were at the forefront of technology, but then other right. smart people had more money. You know, um, Billy Bean was the first guy through the wall. Um, and the guy whose name I can't remember because it was changed in the book that Jonas Hill played in the movie, but he didn't want his name in the book. So the name got changed. Um, you know, they were the first guys through the wall. So they were the initial innovators. But now the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Yankees, the Cardinals, all those people, they're doing it with equally smart people or with salaried analytics people to where they're able to get brighter minds spend more time on this over the course of a number of years iterating and they're doing it with more money analytics is great being smart with a small budget can help you be better you can't necessarily do that as well when other teams catch on to what you're doing start to catch up to you potentially surpass you from a intellectual property analytics smartness standpoint and then also they're doing that with even a bigger budget you know no amount of money balling it, that Burnley FC was going to be able to do was going to have them compete on the same par with Manchester City. Manchester City can make dumb sign can you know Manchester United can burn hundreds of millions of dollars on players that don't fit, literally rip up Cristiano Ronaldo's contract, and still on paper they're better than Fulham, regardless of what Fulham's done with Marco Silva this year and Full America. And so I have to wonder. The, uh, this is a question that I'm wondering, and maybe we'll get an answer to in the next year or two. Did the Rapids cash in on a brilliant idea that Porrick Smith had to take advantage of the market with domestic players to get Kellen Acosta, Mark Anthony Kay, Keegan Rosenberry, Diego Rubio, and now everybody's caught wise to that. Everybody else is doing that. That inherently drives up the market, pushes the Rapids out of that market from a financial standpoint and now when they make one of those moves it's an even more distressed asset fc or they have to take a bigger risk or spend more money in order to get that player you know because like if you're yeah. if, if i'm if i'm fc dallas's front office and i get a call from pork smith and everything and pork says hey i'm interested in next player i'm immediately hanging up the phone and signing that player to a new contract right, and a salary right. bump and everything but yeah, now that's the that's the kevin euclid's greek god of walks theorem of uh of this which is like if Billy Bean starts valuing your players, 
maybe you're not valuing your players enough. That's a really interesting theory, Matt. I like that. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. And then so then the question that I so then either you're having to take bigger risks or more distressed assets or have to pay more money because, you know, at some point, some of these teams are coming up and saying, you know, have to respond by saying, you know, Pork, Fran Taylor, you guys don't have DPs. You don't pay out of market transfer fees and everything. This guy that you're calling about, there's maybe two at the most, other guys that you have on the list that could do what he wants. This isn't really about what his market value is based on if I called all the other MLS front offices, what do you think his value is and what the average is? This is how valued he is to you. And he's valued more because you have less gam, you can make less of these big swings, and now everybody else is making these moves. I'm now going I'm now going to ask for more in valuation. I don't know if those were the conversations that were had in ultimately the acquisition of Kevin Cabral, but I'm wondering if the market is starting to shift now. And while the Rapids had a really good idea and they almost cashed in on it perfectly in in 2021, that now the market has almost like passed them at this point. You know, like this is the, these are the tech guys. These are the hedge funders who got wind of shorting stocks going back to the housing market. And then now into here, they just were completely asleep at the wheel with like the crypto boom and everything and maybe now the crypto people were even further behind on the bus and now there's some other market thing that we don't even realize maybe you know maybe the smart people right now that maybe the smart people right now that will come to light in the next 10 years will be the people who went back to like gold for example i don't know i'm not a financial speculator i barely speculate in the mls market but these are the questions that i have and there's no doubt that this is the most distressed asset we have and this is the one that could go the most sideways of all the ones that they've had and everything like the ceiling that we had for what Acosta, Rosenberry, Jonathan Lewis, um, you know, Mark Anthony Kay, who ironically wasn't that good in 11 months for the Rapids and they doubled their money on him and everything. I don't know how you do that with Kevin Cabral. I think he's coming into a great environment. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and everything, but the analytics and his underlying numbers are pretty darn good. But also the very clear large sample size we have of underlying numbers of him not finishing. It doesn't really matter if you create a bunch of chances, if you shoot them right at the goalkeeper and or you sky them over the wall and the difference is between and you, you know you're nodding your head mark so you know who i'm referring to right now the difference between kevin cabral and jonathan lewis is is that the rapids are paying jonathan lewis like four hundred thousand dollars a year and at no point are the rapids probably ever going to pay him 800k or his his is he going to take up a dp slot and that's what they're paying kevin cabral right now rabbi last thing let's look big picture at what this looks like zardis obviously is not back with the team I'm tempted to say at this point, this probably signals that Diego Rubio is moving back up top for the Rapids. And I'm saying that because I think Cole Bassett's going to be back with the team, despite him alluding to um, maybe a desire to go back to Europe if there's the right opportunity. Check out my article for Burgundy Wave on that if you want more information there, folks. Brian Galvan's coming back, and there were hints that he was potentially moving into a central role. They've got a bunch of options in, in midfield. You know, maybe Ralph Prizzo hits. Maybe Ali LaRoz comes back with a vengeance after his injury and stabilizes that midfield in a different way. Right now, if you're talking about Rubio not playing at the nine, I think, is it just Darren Yappi at this point? So I think it's Rubio moving up top. You try to do something with Cabral. It's one of the guys being the best of the three or maybe a, um, you know, a, a utility squad on the right wing position and then you think you have enough depth to the point where individual tactical moments you've got five or six guys maybe even potentially seven um that could play in the midfield three that works on that and then i think if anything the Raptors are going for a splash to absolutely secure the center midfield position but i think more likely pork really has to look at do we have a long-term internal solution at the center back position 
and definitely absolutely need a left back. I think he's focusing on that far more than a direct like for like acquisition of a player to replace Jossie's artist. Uh, I will reserve judgment. I think that Colorado is going to make moves and then what they'll do is they'll have to assemble a team based on that. I do like the fact that Diego Ruby was so good at the 10 last year and so good at the 9 last year that you can probably play him at either one. Um, but you do make a good point that Cole Bassett makes that a little bit more tricky. Um, he's probably your more natural number 10 and put putting Rubio up top. But that being said, you can play uh, Cole Bassett as one of your three midfielders, as more of your shuttler, um, your, your kind of eight player, because he really covers a lot of ground. He's not um, as physical and defensive. Um, he's a little bit more dribbly and a little bit less passy. Than your average guy like Mark Anthony Kay and Kellen Acosta did when they played at the eight last year. But um, I think there's still a lot of room for additions to this team. Um, and you could try Cabral inside as a striker um, if you're going to put uh, two strikers together. Um, we really don't know whether I've never really gotten a sense from Robin Frazier, whether he's very didactic and uh, doctrinaire. Those are some big words, Matt. Um, about what uh, formation he prefers, how he likes the team to play, or whether he takes the players that he has and makes a formation based out of them. Um, we'll start to kind of understand that more at the beginning of February. My sense is that he's generally kind of a 4-3-3 type guy, but um, I think that's just because he's had a lot of good wingers to, to work with. If the Rapids sell off a lot of wingers in the offseason, or they decide they wind up with, um, you know, a two-man midfield um, or a four-man midfield that really makes sense in kind of a diamond formation, then maybe we go that way. I don't know. Um, keep, stay tuned, Rapids fans, to see who else they sign. I think this last point that you made about Galvan um, is, a, is a big deal. Um, the Rapids had a really nice, had three nice, three really good center backs for a stretch of last season, and that pushed them to go to a... 3-5-2 formation, but if they don't get a third center back um, in there who's really, really talented, um, expect them to go forward the back again next year, and that really kind of depends on whether they're going to replace uh, or upgrade over um, Danny Wilson next year. Um, I think Danny Wilson, Lalo Abubakar, and a third guy together are great. I think another year of Wilson and Abubakar center backing at the back by themselves, not so great. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, can we get out of here? Yes, we can get out of here. It has almost been night for you, Rabbi. So let's just get to bed. It is late. I have uh sleeping to do. Listeners, our sponsors are Icarus SC and Roughneck Scarves. They make custom apparel. Icarus will make the design of whatever kind of soccer uniform you want for your bachelor party, uh, uh, soccer team, friend gathering, holiday party, whatever you want. Uh, Roughneck Scarves does the same thing, but they do it for your neck. It is cold out there, Matt, today. Uh, tomorrow, I think the high in, in Pittsburgh is 34 degrees. I need to break my scarves out and wrap them around my neck and keep me warm. I probably need a few more. I'm running low. Now's the time to go to Roughneck and see what else they have. Matt, tell them how to hit us on the socials, how to read our written content, or how to get in contact with us at the show. Listeners, follow us on Twitter at soccer underscore rabbi, at LWS Matt Pollard, and at Rapids96 Podcast. Check out all of our written work at collectively at Pittsburgh Soccer Now, 
Last Word on Sports, and at our Substack, holdingthehighline.substack.com. Um, send us your questions using the hashtag on Twitter, AskHGHL, or via email at rapids96podcast at gmail.com. If you go on over to our Substack right now, you can view a lot of stuff for free on the web format. You can subscribe via email, and you can take out a paid subscription, 5 bucks a month or 42 bucks for the year. Still making that an option. And to close out the podcast, Mark, in the way that Grant Wall would, uh, the best way to support our work is to take out a paid subscription.